Hey everyone, welcome to the 42nd episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. On today's episode, Joel Myers and I recap Wimbledon. We discuss the tactics of champions Alcaraz and Vondrosova, what you can learn from Chris Eubanks' serve, a unique volley tip, and more advice for the 4-0 player. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Joel, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me. So this one's going to start a little different than our Aussie and our Roland Garros recaps because Novak has not won his third in a row, although he came close. So we're going to start with Alcaraz and obviously an incredible talent. He's won two of the last three slams that he's played in. Missile for a forehand. His movement is an absolute joke. He can come forward. So many great things to like about him. But is there one thing that stands out for you that kind of separates him, especially from the other young players like a Medvedev, a Rude, a Rune, a Sinner. What separates him from that group right now? I think he's adaptable to any opponent that he's playing. I think Novak commented on that as well. It was interesting. They asked him, you know, what his his game is compared to in terms of the big three, and he said, you know, in terms of what he's taken from me, it's the adaptability, and he said that was the strength of his game. But you know, he loves playing Medvedev, obviously, because of how far Medvedev plays behind the baseline that plays in with the drop the drop shot you know so um also the serve and volley is willing to do that and i was looking at some junior points of him um at the la petite a uh, french tournament and you can see how long he's been doing this stuff how long he's been offensive coming forward and transitioning and you know his backhand is super compact and clean and it's he's able to come forward on that if you drop it short he can unload the big forehand and he can hit the drop shot as well but i think his ability to try um, try things and obviously to exploit whatever weakness the opponent's giving him. You know, I think he's a guy that can do so much that probably doesn't focus exclusively on what he's doing on the court. He can probably look down the other side and say, here's an adjustment my opponent's made. Here's what I need to do. But I thought what was fascinating from this Wimbledon, I really didn't think he was going to win the match. I didn't even think he was going to win the match when he was serving for it, to be honest, because Djokovic is so tough to beat. And that passing shot that Djokovic had on Alcaraz, and it was 15 all, and he came into the net, and he knocked off that absolute stunning stretch backhand drop volley. It was out of control. I just thought, you know, he's so his instincts are so good. His attacking instincts are so good. That first point when he's serving for the match, I can't even imagine the pressure that he's under there. But he misses the first drop shot, and everyone's like, oh, you know. The next point, he drop shots again and, and lobs Novak for for an outright winner. And you're just like, this guy's playing what is being given to him, even in that, under this extreme pressure. I just think that's such a talent. That's what I was going to say next is. He, I think he said before the match that no matter what, it's going to be the best day of his life, win or lose. And that's because you can tell he just loves, at this point, he's 20, but he loves playing. He loves competing. And I think even at that 5-4 game, I'm sure he was tight, but it seems like almost like, wow, what a moment. Like, this is so fun. I can't wait to see if I can come up with the goods. And then you contrast that to maybe like an Anjabur, she's saying, I felt the weight of the world and I'm so nervous and whatever. Did you notice the difference in those two finals, maybe between the love of the game and the moment and just competing for the sake of competing versus I really need to win this? Yeah, but I also felt like Ons was the favorite going into that match. So there was more weight. She'd also had, she'd beaten some amazing players to get there. And if you just look at the at paper, you go, oh, Ons has got this. So I think there is probably less pressure in a sense. Well, sorry, there is probably more pressure in a sense that, you know, she's the overwhelming favorite. Alcaraz 
told everybody openly, which I thought was interesting, that he struggled so much with nerves at the French against Djokovic. That's such a huge turnaround to be literally cramping and having it physically affect you from the nerves to then being able to play the way he did and serve it out. I mean, he did say winning that breaker in the second set was the thing that really turned it for him for, for belief reasons. Because what was what was the streak that Novak was on? 15 straight. That's unbelievable. And everyone knows how he locks down. He just does not make tie-break mistakes. We talked about that last time. But getting that set, he said he might have lost in straight sets had he lost that tiebreaker. So there's, there's so many key moments in that. Um, I thought the last game's interesting because he didn't break the rhythm. He continued with the same routine and the same rhythm of between points, coming up to the line, serving. He made a lot of first serves, which is testament to his mental strength because it's insanely hard to make first serves under pressure. Everything tightens up and you either overplay them or you dump it in the net or you underplay it and you got a quality returner like Novak who still made a lot of returns in that last game. You know, that was, it was just, it was really standout. I just thought his execution under such immense pressure was, it was amazing. And there must've been some serious work done with his sports psychologist. So you're mentioning that breaker. I think it was, I think, Novak maybe in the breaker got a time violation warning, but he was up 6-5 and he dumped two of the most routine backhands in a row. And obviously he hasn't done that for 15 straight tiebreakers. But to me, it was like this great lesson. Like even when you're playing someone at the peak of their powers and they're awesome, you're playing someone better than you. That, that stuff happens to every player. I would not have bet any money that Novak's most solid shot He's a lockdown and a breaker, and he dumps two of them back to back. If you ever think a good player is not going to give you anything, like they will if you kind of give them the opportunity and stick with it. But a lot of people don't stick with that. Yeah, and I think at the start of that match, I mean, obviously Djokovic plays within himself. He almost played within himself. I feel like most of that match, you know, almost hoping the pressure would take hold of Alcaraz a little bit. But I think when you have such a rock solid shot, you just assume that it's going in. You don't pay extra attention to that and I think that could be maybe a concentration lapse you know these guys are playing for so long you have a slight concentration lapse for 20-30 seconds and you you lose some crucial points you lose a huge break that's such an intangible in tennis the quality of being able to stay concentrated to focus and to either switch it off between points and then turn it back on or to stay on but I think that's it's so hard to do so easy to talk about so hard to do everything's easy to talk about always so Let's move it to, uh, stay on the men's side, but Chris Eubanks, I remember watching him. So he didn't play a lot of juniors, and we saw him at Kalamazoo. He just showed up. I think he was like, at that time, ranked like 100, only because he hadn't played. And he hit like three balls, and every college coach there was like, who the hell is that guy? Like, who who is that guy? Like, what is the deal? And he had already verbally committed to Georgia Tech because he was from the area. He just stood out immediately. The ball jumped off his racket. What did you see from him in this tournament that kind of allowed him to have, you know, that magical run? First serve quality is huge. The ability to come forward and at 6-7 with reach, he volleyed really well. The backhand, he was hitting high quality, you know, fundamental good cross-court backhands. And then if it was short, he'd come in behind it. That's one of the the advantages for Graf with a one-handed backhand is you can hit the ball more in front of your body. Two-handers, they can't make that contact in front of the body. You got to get out of the way and rotate more why all of us coaches transition to a one-handed backhand so we don't have to move our feet as much. But I just think that he has that, that game, especially on grass, where it's so hard to get the serve back and then the added pressure of him coming in behind it. But he just made so many 
high quality serves. And I just think that just it takes pressure off the return game a little bit, allows them to free up. But when you're holding like that, it's it's a standout. And he's got gained belief as he comes along. But that's I guess a player like that can catch fire because he has so many weapons. You know, his offensive ability is just is standout, especially on, on grass on the faster courts. I, I saw a post from you on your Instagram, but is there anything any one or two things that stand out technically on his serve that someone out there listening can kind of try to implement and, and improve their own serve with? Yeah. I mean, I think probably the one you'd want to look at the most is maybe the ball toss. I think that's the ball toss for Chris Eubanks is like, you know, it's not super high for six, seven. I'm sure there are a lot of club players out there that have higher ball tosses than Chris Eubanks does. So, you know, effectively I've said this a lot, but when, and it wasn't my research that discovered this actually come back from Vic Braden a long time ago. But when you toss, you know, about 20 inches higher than your your reach, your standing reach, the ball drop through the hitting zone on the of the racket is very slow. And when the ball is much higher than your standing reach at contact, the ball drops down through the hitting window really quickly. So if you're trying to have a more consistent serve, you definitely want to experiment with a lower toss. It doesn't mean tossing so low that the contact is low. It just means that, you know, you have enough time to get through your action and still hit the ball. Uh, at a slower point. You see that real commonality with all the really good servers if you notice how high the peak of their toss is and then the, the height of contact. It's usually not much higher than 20 inches. You mentioned uh, he's got huge reach at the net. He had a bunch of great volleys. I actually want to share, so before we started recording, you were talking about where you put your left finger on the racket and it's in terms of your ready position and how you're holding the racket, can you kind of touch on what we talked about before the show? And I'm sure that if we watch Eubanks, he does a similar thing with his hand orientation. Yeah, you see quite a few times a non-racket hand or the non-racket index finger on one-handers or players when they transition to the net. The offhand will be high on the throat and you'll see the offhand index finger will be pressed somewhere on the strings in the frame. And it's, it's a little bit of a, a tip to get some tactile feedback on the racket face. So, for instance, if I'm coming to the net and I have a backhand volley, as I switch my grip, I know that my index finger is orientating the racket face towards the ball. So I have a better understanding on on my you know non-dominant hand, my backhand side of where that ball is going to be and where the racket face is. So that's something that I, it was taught to me in one lesson one time. I remember it a long time ago, but I've noticed it in a lot of players since. And I think it's just a it's a nice place to find that finger, that offhand finger, to help you to control the racket face. I, I love that. I'll, I'll be sharing a video. I know it might be a little difficult to, to hear it, but I'll put a video up, but we were kind of putting our hands up in front of the yeah. I loved, I loved yeah. what I saw from you. It was yeah, great. Just, so I was like, you know what? It's pretty nerdy. It's pretty nerdy stuff. It's like real details. And I, I don't know why I remember that so much, but once I played around with it, it was, it felt strange at first, but after that, it's been, it stuck with me for years. Hey man, small details. Yeah. They mean everything. Yep. Okay, so speaking of small details, like we said, I before the show, I was on the WTA website and I listened to Marketa Vondrosova, Vondrosova. pronounce her name four times, <laughs> pronounce her name four times in a row to make sure I could get it right, and it's still tripping me up. But what did you see from her that kind of allowed her to win it as an unseated player? Um, lefty, great slice of on grass. Um, she had good touch. She had good response, especially in the final to. Uh, Jabor's touch and I think she sort of played within herself and let maybe Jabor beat herself in the final but you know she reminds me of other lefty players that have won in the past she's obviously super mentally tough but it's a huge accomplishment to win that from being unseated I mean that's that's such a 
that's such a huge accomplishment. You know, I think Emma Raducanu uh, winning from qualifiers was huge, but you know, winning Wimbledon is just next level. I just am so surprised by both Alcaraz and Vondrosova about how they handled the match in the in the moment because you know on paper they both should have lost those matches but they handled the moment so well the, in, the intangibles on in tennis are so fascinating because you can talk about all the x's and o's but when it comes to actually actually managing your game and executing you have to really do that well my girl pagula was obviously so close to beating her she was up 4-1 and had a game point at 4-1 which was devastating for me so i can only imagine how how tough that was for her and in the moment I thought Vondrosova was kind of rushing. She was playing kind of quickly. And they showed her coach at one point, and the coach just looked shell-shocked. He thought he was going to be in the locker room in like four minutes consoling her. And one backhand, Jesse missed a backhand on that game point. And then all of a sudden, Marquetta gets hot, and things change. And in the moment, I was so down because I could feel it swinging. I was like, man, I, I don't. This is not great for Jesse. Like, this is not yeah. going to go well. And I thought it was such a great lesson, though, because so many people, when they're down, it's never over in tennis. Like, at that point, I would have bet so much that Jesse was going to win. And then after that one point and seeing how Vondrosova won the, the point after that, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to get tight. And it did. And she was so close to losing in the quarters, and now she's the champ. I just feel like people need to hang in there. Yeah, the momentum swings. Like every match has momentum swings. Even when you win pretty cruisy, you still can identify moments where your opponent's getting some momentum and you can feel things starting to change and you can you know either you get on top of them and you snuff that out or they can make a little comeback but it's like there's so many momentum swings in tennis it's how can you limit your downswings and maximize your upswings and i think you know people do that with pace of play it's a little bit harder with the pros but you know amateurs do that more with pace of play you're on a roll you keep it going a little bit faster things aren't going your way you slow things down you go to the towel but sometimes slowing it down or going back to basics or changing it up a little bit, it definitely can get you back in the match. But like you're saying, at that level, like one backhand, one big point, you know, one, you know, volley can sort of ignite players' belief and just be like, oh, you know, I'm back. That feels good. A lot of us struggle when we play lefties. Is there any advice, especially, you know, I think most lefties like to hit that slice serve. Is there any advice that you can help uh, a player out there when you're returning a lefty serve anything that helps in general yeah i mean they're going to look to use that because it's such an advantage so visually take it away initially i mean if this if they're burning you with something routinely and a lot of times it is the slice of wide or it has a lot of you know movement on it then plug that hole stop the bleeding in that area make them go somewhere else um, and you can either stand over there visually take it away and say go to the t go against the grain or you can stand over there, and then when they toss the ball, you can come back to neutral. So that's another another option. But I think you have to sort of you have to make the server a little bit reactive to your positioning, rather than just stand there and say, "I'm going to try and deal with that serve when it gets here. I'm going to deal with it before they serve it. I'm going to make you go somewhere else and see if if you can do that." You know, if let's say in the ad court, a typical lefty likes to slice out wide to a righty's backhand. And so if you stood with both of your feet outside of the doubles alley, really far over, I would think at that point, there's probably a good chance that player will try to ace you T. And then when you inch closer and closer to the right, back towards the middle, there's going to be this point where the, they have to now make a decision. You're still covering wide, but it's not quite as obvious. And you, like that's the sweet spot for me is right in that decision mode where you think you've talked them into what you want, but you're also able to cover both. And that's just like trial and error, I think. 
Yeah, and obviously the better you are, the smaller the margins because the smaller the details or the detail change that the server is going to see. So obviously you can't give a professional player, you can't stand both feet in the alley with a professional player. They're going to ace you up the tee, even with a slice serve. But if you are an amateur or a junior, absolutely. You know, and when someone has a great slice serve wide, it's still difficult to change from slice to flat and be spot on with the location. So you'll find players that have great slice serves wide in the ad side, let's say it's a lefty. If you give them T and really give them T and they still hit it, there's generally a bit of swing back towards you anyway. So it's a little bit easier to cover for you because that swing is coming back towards your forehand return. So I think you do have to get in their head a little bit. I know, you know, the better the server is, the more you have to try and be involved. You can't just be a gargoyle there and let them you know, go wherever they want. But yeah, you're right when you can get them in that decision point because then you're making them reactive to your positioning instead of you just being um, reactive to the serve. Last thing for you know Wimbledon specifically, was there anything you saw tactically? Obviously, not many people listening here are going to be playing on grass anytime soon, but a quicker court, was there anything tactically you saw that players who are playing on a quicker surface can kind of apply to their game? Yeah, more value out of the slice backhand. I thought players used that, obviously, to keep the ball low um, low and stay neutral on the rally and see if their opponent wanted to lift it above the net and change direction. That's one of them. I think players have to generally return pretty close to the baseline in these faster courts, um, unless you're Medvedev. Uh, but, you know, I think that's one of the big ones. Approaching, obviously, is a great play just because the pace of the approach shot is generally greater as well. And just you get a little bit more value out of your first serve. The I think the movement patterns are always really interesting in Wimbledon because it changes more in like when you're decelerating and you're having to change direction where they use little steps, the softer little steps, more little steps to get back. Um, and then obviously, you know, the shortening up of the swings when they play closer to the baseline, the back swings get shorter so they can time the ball. So those things are the biggest ones for me. I wanted to mention this earlier, and I'm glad you mentioned him again, Medvedev. I think it was, I can't remember what Twitter I saw, but, you know, if people were saying, oh, he should take the return earlier against Alcaraz. And then when he did, he missed all eight. You know, he was like 0 for 8. You know, there's a tactic that was, people think would be better for him. And they act like he's never thought about it before. And then he tried it and he can't execute. And so I was trying to explain it to a player today. I'm like, hey, you know, any player out there that you play, any single one can be beat. Do you agree with that? Like, Djokovic loses, every player loses. And there is a specific way that you can beat them. The question is, do you have the tools to do it? And so a lot of people hate adding things to their game. It's uncomfortable. I'm bad at this already. I don't want to do it. But if you only have like one tool and it doesn't work, then you're going to lose. And if you say Medvedev's going to have a better chance of beating Alcaraz if he can return from the baseline, well, he currently can't do it that well, at least on that surface. Right. And so it's like he's going to have to get better at that. And you mentioned a slice backhand. There's a lot of players who hate that. But if you can't hit a slice, that that option no longer exists for you. You have to be able to do a couple different things, but every player can be beat. It's just you might not have the skill set of the toolbox to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Matchups are huge in tennis. The way the ball comes at you, the pace that it comes at you, the height. Um, the serve. I mean, all of that stuff, you definitely need to problem solve because there's always going to be uh, somebody that's going to beat you at a certain game style. You know, it can be, sometimes the analogy is a little bit like MMA. There's different styles of fighters and there's one style that counters another. And so maybe you're a great baseliner, but you make the final of the tournament and you've got a better baseliner down the other end. Where can you gain the advantage if it's not the baseline? 
and what can you do differently? So there's, there's always things you can do. And I think the best players are always looking to add things to their game, at least for, from a countering perspective. So that when you do come up against someone who is trying to expose that on you, you can at least counter, at least stay you know, neutral. You can, it's not a disadvantage for you to be in that situation. All right, we're going to finish up Instagram questions. Uh, softball first, I think. But this person said, obviously, in your last episode, you thought Novak was going to win a certain amount of slams. Did the result on Sunday impact that prediction at all? Not really. I think that'll make him hungrier. I don't think that's going to break him. I, don't, I think it was a very shocking result for me. I really thought Novak was going to win it just because of the intangible of the pressure. And going on historically on the French Open, where Alcraz said to everybody in the world, I was suffering from such bad nerves. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like Wimbledon, as a spectator, I'm the most nervous watching Wimbledon more than anything else. The French Open final, I'm like sitting back, relaxed. Wimbledon, it's quiet. It's Everything's amplified. I feel like you're just hanging on every serve and return and pattern of play. I just felt like he dealt with the nerves, Alcraz, way better than I thought. Uh, even though Djokovic wasn't bad. But um, Alcaraz just executed and a freely offensive game towards the end and closed him out. Djokovic didn't lose it. Alcaraz closed it out. Uh, okay, so you're sticking with your number from last time. No change. No change. Okay. Alcaraz uh, has an insane forehand. This person wanted to know, obviously not as well as Carlos, but how you can learn to accelerate more on your forehand. How can you be? How can you accelerate? I mean, Carlos Alcaraz's power is going to come from like always amazing contact, but it comes from the ground up. You know, it all comes from the ground up. His positioning, how he uses his kinetic chain out of you know the semi-open or the, the open stance, even closed stance. You look at how fast he turns his hips. I mean, that's amazing how quickly he rotates into the ball. And because he's always out in front, like he's putting all of his energy into the best contact point he can. He has the ability to bomb it. Or if he wants to hit it heavy with spin, then he gets under the ball before he gets to contact and there's more spin on it. So, you know, all of that power stuff, I wouldn't focus on the swing. I would focus more on getting into position and making sure your contact point is optimal. That's the most important thing, especially for amateurs who are not at the level. I think the contact point gets overlooked. Were there any patterns of play that you saw from basically any of the top players who maybe got to the quarters or beyond this person wanted to know, were there any patterns that surprised you? That surprised me. Um, I was surprised more. I was surprised things weren't used more. Uh, I was surprised there wasn't uh, more second serve return approach, either chip or charge or rip and charge, especially on the backhand side. I think uh, Alcraz did that a few times in the final where he's got that compact take back. He can just take that super early and get on the net. Drop shot lob combination. I mean, that's the drop shot is effective, but the drop shot's typically more effective when you have a bomb that the player is expecting and they take that backward step and then the, the drop shot comes into play more. Uh, but yeah, just sort of two, in terms of patterns, I always think of like two balls. Like what two balls in a row can you string together? But yeah, I mean, I think it's just surprised things that surprised me was that they weren't used as often. Maybe this, obviously the serve and volley, I think any player that was losing or you know, should have been serving and volleying more, in my opinion. You, know, you look at the stats at, and even the players that lose, they're generally around 60% win rate, which is high. I mean, if you're going to lose, make it as tough as possible on your opponent. So I was probably always more surprised at Wimbledon there's not more serve and volley. Was there a moment or a point that stood out for you in the entire tournament? Uh, I think it was 4-4 in the 
tiebreaker in the second set of the men's final, that, that drop shot, that forehand drop shot where Alcaraz lines up and you're like, he's going to rip it. And then he hits that little drop shot in behind Djokovic. And, you know, that's one of the things that he's so smart about when he uses a drop shot is he typically uses it in behind the, the player. So he uses their own momentum against them. So they have to sort of make a little circle on the way to the ball rather than be able to beeline straight to it. And then his judgment also on whether he should close the net for the volley and take it as an approach or to back up is he's insanely good at making that decision. Sometimes he'll fake going in and come back. He did that against Medvedev. He dropped Medvedev and Medvedev comes in and uh, Alcaraz looks like he's going to close the net. So Medvedev's going to look to chip behind him, obviously. And then he quickly backs up and puts it away in it. So his, his decision-making was, was amazing. I thought the, the drop shot was huge. You mentioned mine earlier. I thought you were going to say it, actually. The game where he served for it, 15-0. Like, number one, I, I'm, ju- I'm just like you. I was like, he's not winning this. Like, Novak has got 99 lives. Like, this is not going to go well. And I saw him get out, and he ripped the pass. And on grass, which is a slick surface, he's balanced. He stretches. And like, I'm so used to seeing players every day come in off balance and they get past and they just move their head. They don't even move the body. They just, yeah. they just watch it go. And I'm like, yeah. just, just stick your racket out. Like something yeah. good could happen. And I was like, just amazed at the balance and his ability to get to a shot like that. And that, that passing shot from Djokovic was laced. That was unbelievable. I looked and, and Djokovic didn't even look disappointed. I don't know if you looked at his reaction. He was like, yep, that was, that was my best. Open stance, sliding backhand pass cross court, and you just stab volley two bounces in the service box. Like that was intent, but that showed you that he was willing to come forward. Like all of those points, except for one where I think Djokovic jammed him up with that um, great return down the center. They're all offensive. Everything was offensive. He didn't sit, settle back and was like, "I'm going to wait till this guy misses." But he also didn't make like silly decisions. So they're all coming in behind his strength. Maybe the only questionable one was that first point drop shot. Last two questions. Actually, no, you know what? I want to ask you about that too. The first point drop shot, it was a yeah. backhand in the net, right? The first point drop shot, yeah, down the line backhand, went for the drop, missed it by an inch. Yeah, down the line backhand in the net. This happens sometimes with parents that are watching their kid with me. If he makes that, he's been drop shotting well all match. He was up in the court. I didn't think that was the worst decision in the world, but he missed the shot. And so then it's like, oh, wow. He's, I think one of the commentators said, oh, he's tight or oh, like he might regret that decision. I'm like, well... Was it a bad decision because he missed it? Or was it a bad decision because you thought he was behind the baseline or something? Just because you don't execute a shot doesn't mean it's a bad decision. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't... He, but this is why I think he's so good on instinct is because the second point, he drop shots again, which a forehand down the line brings Novak to net. But I don't think he's planning in his mind, I'm going to drop shot Novak on this point. I think it's coming... The, the incoming ball, Novak's positioning. I think all of those factors come in and his his instinct and his ability to adapt is like un- is unbelievable. So he backed himself even after missing the first one. But I did hear a very interesting statistic when it came to Wimbledon holds. And apparently, if you're up 15 love as a server at Wimbledon, you had a 90% chance of holding the game. You know, those first couple of points, especially in terms of a big pressure moment like that, is huge. If you can get ahead, if you can get to 30 before your opponent does, that gives you lots of leeway. You know, as as opposed to if you had lost that second point, it's love 30. Now things are changing. Like it, everything changes on a dime. And that's why that 15, 15 all point, that stretch volley is huge because at 15.30, everything is starting to turn negative. And you start to think about Djokovic down the other end and you are playing 
the greatest pressure player on his favourite court, basically. Oh, maybe, maybe apart from Aussie. But, yeah, I just thought that was just a, a cra- crazy development in how he executed under pressure. Last two questions here. Uh, this person wanted to know your early US Open predictions. Well, I think Djokovic now. I actually think Djokovic. I thought it might have been harder for him to close before. I didn't think Alcaraz would win, the, win Wimbledon. I thought he might make the final. But I, I still think Djokovic. I think he's got a... I mean, Alcaraz had to play outstanding to beat him. And I don't think Novak played necessarily very aggressive in that Wimbledon, generally, overall. There were times he was, but I think, you know, Alcaraz probably makes maybe the final probably again, and Djokovic beats him in the final. Probably in another tight one, because now that Alcaraz knows that he can get in, I think that's going to open up his confidence a lot going forward. Because if you can do that, uh, on the biggest stage in the world at the biggest moment, then you can do anything. I think he really probably believes that now. So he's more dangerous than ever. And last question, it can be whatever the last thing you taught today, but give us a, a piece of advice for the 4035 player. I would say make as many of the first two touches you can. On, on serve, make your serve in the next ball. On return, make your return in the next ball. Pick a target for both. Always have a plan for both. And then depending on the incoming ball, depends on how aggressive you can go to that target. But I think so many points, and we talk about this all the time, but so many points end in the first first two touches. Uh, I think you have to have a plan for all four starts of the point, your first serve, your second serve, your first serve return, and your second serve return. Um, not just thinking about serving and returning. I think each point starts differently, has a different intent, and just mastering what your intention is at the start of that point and your targets. And even if you mis-execute, you know, assess if is that the right target and just commit to it and change it if you need to, but definitely have a plan for the first two touches on each of those first the four starts to the point, if that makes sense. It does. I had dinner with the golf co- uh, the head golf pro at my club. Long story, but uh, my wife's actually been friends with his wife forever. It's a small world, but we had dinner with them and – he said that people with golf, he said the thing is, is it's so difficult that people try to make it complicated. And he said that, and I'm like, God, there's a lot of that in tennis. Yep. Tennis is a really difficult sport to get good at. And people hear that, oh, make two balls. Really difficult to do and oh. really difficult to hit a quality ball. It really isn't more complicated than that. No. And that's very, that's very general. It's very general, but that's also um, scalable to every level. So whether you are 4-0 or you are in the US Open this year, you know, that would be really good advice because, you know, obviously if somebody has huge weapons, you need to make your first two balls. You need to neutralize those weapons. But when you know somebody on the other end is also dangerous or when you're starting the point, you can't just lay that serve in, lay it up. You've got to hurt them, but you also can't miss. So there's lots of variables that go into that. Um, One of the drills that I really like to do with players is um, we'll work on, them hitting a serve to a target and they'll keep serving until they hit that target. Let's say they're working a righty working on a slice serve wide. We'll put a cone down. They'll go to that, they'll hit that serve and then I will feed the next ball in from close to the same angle, a similar angle. And I'll either try and jam them up with that feed, real tough jam up and try and catch them in their recovery. And if I do that, their target is deep down the middle just to neutralize. But if I feed a, you know, a mid-court ball, then they have to recover and they come up and they put that ball away to a, another offensive target. So they have always focused on two shots, 
but they have to make a, a switch. They have to change gears depending on the return quality, which all good players have to do. Last thing before you go, uh, you didn't give me a women's prediction. Oh, for the final. I would love to see Ons Jabor win it, but I think Iga is going to win the, the US Open. I think there's going to be revenge uh, for her not winning Wimbledon. But she moves so she moves so well. I did think she might struggle on the grass only because of the grips. You know, you just look at the, the grips and you're like, it's not the best grip for a low skidding ball. Um, but on the US Open, I think the ball sits up a little bit more. She can get more traction and play back further. So I think she'll be really hard to beat there. But I would love to see Ons win it. Yeah, I'm obviously picking Pagula yep, yep. for every tournament that she can still play. But um, hey, super bold predictions there by picking Djokovic and Iga. Like that's yeah, uh, way to yeah, go out on a limb there. I mean, to... <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, you don't want to be so far off the mark. Like, you know, I'm not going to pick. Uh, you know, Chris Eubanks had a great win, but I'm definitely not picking him for the US Open. Right. Fair enough. All right. Well, great stuff as always. Uh, you know, we'll be watching the US Open and hopefully talking to you in a couple of weeks here. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. All right, I want to thank Joel for continuing to carve out time for us. I love hearing his takes on these big matches. His information on the Eubanks ball toss is gold. I know if you guys tried lowering your toss, it will feel a bit weird at first, but long term, it will absolutely improve your serve. And just in general, try to keep watching as much tennis as you can when it's on TV. There's so much to learn by watching the positive tactics and even through some of the mistakes of these world-class players. Each point you watch, you're getting a mental rep. And if you're fully engaged, you're becoming a smarter tennis player. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.